Jeremiah chapter 10 verses 1 through 5 is my opening text for today. We'll read it. This is out of the King James Version here on the screen. It says, Hear ye the word which Yahweh speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith Yahweh, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the heathen are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. May Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. It is so strange to me that when it comes to the two biggest holidays in Christianity today, Easter in the spring and Christmas in the winter, that neither of these holidays were observed by the earliest Christians or earliest believers in the Messiah. The Easter one actually came earlier than Christmas. Easter came mid to late second century. If you're wanting to understand how we got from Passover to Easter, I have a series of lessons on that. However, the earliest believers in the Messiah were in the first century, and we should not stop our research at the second century. When we're looking for that old-time religion, we shouldn't go back to Azusa Street. We shouldn't go back to the Protestant Reformation. We shouldn't go back to the second century. We've got to go all the way back to the disciples of the Messiah and see what they practiced and what they believed. All the earliest believers in the Messiah were Israelites. That should not surprise us because so was their Messiah. He was from the tribe of Yehuda, Judah. Yeshua was born into a family who celebrated the annual festival cycle found in the law of Moses. And there is no indication that he ever intended to disrupt that in his ministry. Uh, so I'd like to briefly review what I've covered so far in this series on Christmas. And I want to add a little more before we move into looking at our opening text from Jeremiah. I began these lessons by pointing out that there was no such thing as Christmas in the first century church. The Messiah had been born in Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 1 talk about that. And during his lifetime on earth, no one celebrated his birth as an annual holiday. The angels and the shepherds did rejoice the night that he was born. I talked about that last week in Luke chapter 2. And without him being born, he could not have done all that he did in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and high priesthood in heaven. But after that night in the city of David, none of his closest relatives or friends celebrated his birthday each year as a festival. Nobody did. They followed him and were probably much more devoted to him than us today. But they did that without celebrating his birth as an annual feast. So we move from there into the 2nd and 3rd century, and I covered how there was no such thing as Christmas in the 2nd century church. Now, in the 2nd century church, Gentile Christianity started to move away from the Hebraic roots of the faith. And I believe they headed in the wrong direction. Yet we have no record of anyone in the 2nd century celebrating Christmas. From the year 100 A.D. to 200 A.D., there's no record of it. And we really don't have any record of a holiday for Christ's birth in the 3rd century either, from 200 A.D. to 300 A.D. Now we do have Christians speculating as to when the Messiah may have been born during this time period, the 3rd century. I talked about that last week. 
But talking about when he might have been born and giving dates of speculation does not equal a festival or holiday for his birth. It's not until the 4th century, mid to late 4th century, 350 to 400 AD, that we find some Christians holding some type of festival for the birth of Christ. Now that's over 300 years from the time period of the resurrection of Yeshua. That's a long time. 300 years, that would be like going back to 1721 in America. That's a long time ago. Long time ago. Now, I also talked about celebrating additional festivals other than the ones commanded in Scripture. And I believe that I have shown from Scripture and Israelite history that that's not always a bad thing. We have record in Scripture where Israelites of old instituted a national holiday in the twelfth month on their calendar. That holiday is called Purim, which means the casting of the lots. You can read about this in the book of Esther in your Bible. And we also have one in the ninth month in the book of 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees, and it's also mentioned in John chapter 10. It's called the Feast of Dedication, sometimes known in Hebrew as Hanukkah, celebrated around November, December. Purim would be around February, March, Hanukkah, November, December. We even find a case in 2nd Chronicles chapter 30 where Israelites were keeping the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they decided... Let's keep this feast for another seven days. We've had so much fun on the first seven days. Let's keep it for another seven days. And so they did. And Yahweh didn't reprimand them. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't get mad at them. As a matter of fact, He blessed them for their joy and their dedication to Him. The main thing to point out in these three examples is that these additional holidays were all begun by people who were devoted to Yahweh's commanded feasts. Purim and Hanukkah were not begun or started as rivals to or substitutes for the commanded festivals. You catch that. The Israelites that instituted Purim, they did not say we're going to do this instead of the commanded feast. When they kept Hanukkah, they did not say we're going to do this and not do the commanded feast anymore. No, they were kept in addition to the commanded festivals. And also in Purim and Hanukkah and in these additional seven days of unleavened bread, in none of these additional holidays were there any attempt to mix or to mimic heathen or pagan practice or custom and incorporate it into the worship of Yahweh. They were additional national holidays instituted to remember great events in Israel's history. And they're optional. You can take them or you can leave them. They're not commanded. My family and I, we really don't celebrate Hanukkah and Purim. Sometimes we'll read the first four chapters of 1 Maccabees to remember Hanukkah. I think that's beautiful. It's a great story. If you've never read it, you need to. You can read about Purim at the end of the book of Esther. I have no problem if anybody wants to celebrate that, but I also have no problem if they don't. It's not a commanded festival. A lot of people will point out things like this, and rightfully so, but they'll stop there, and they'll forget to tell you that there were some extra festivals or holidays kept in the Bible that were condemned. We have the prime example in Exodus 32 where Aaron says tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh and yet incorporated in that feast is a golden calf. Exodus 32. Some people say the Israelites were trying to worship a different God in addition to Yahweh. Other people say the Israelites were trying to worship Yahweh in a wrong way. You know what? Either way that you see that text... The people were condemned for corrupting 
a festival with outside heathen influence. They were condemned. They were condemned so much that 3,000 Israelites died that day due to false heathen worship. That's pretty serious. 3,000 souls died. A similar thing happened in 1 Kings 12 under a king named Jeroboam in northern Israel. This was after the split of the Israelite kingdom from uh, after the days of Solomon uh, to the uh, sons Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam took uh, Judah in the south and Jeroboam took Israel in the north. And Jeroboam decided, I don't want my guys, my kingdom, my people, I don't want them going down to Judah uh, to attach to Rehoboam. I want to stand here with me. And so Jeroboam decided, I know what I'll do. I'll make up my own feast. And so First Kings 12 says, Jeroboam, he devised a feast in his own heart. It actually says in the month that he devised in his own heart. It was in the eighth month instead of the seventh month. And what Jeroboam did is he moved the Feast of Tabernacles from the commanded appointed time in the seventh month. He moved it to the eighth month. And Scripture says he decided that in his own heart. He made some calves. He made some priests out of the lowest of the people instead of Levites. And he says, this is the feast we're going to keep. And it is condemned in that text. And this shows us continually off of Exodus 32 that not all additional feasts are permissible. So I asked the question in one of my sermons recently, what category does Christmas fall under? Well, on the one hand, there are some good things about Christmas. Now, a lot of Torah people don't like me saying that. I found a lot of times when you speak the truth, you get yourself in trouble with everybody. <laughs> but there are some good things. What do I mean by that? Well, the birth narratives are read this time of the year. Matthew 1 and Luke 2. That's great. Those are beautiful. There are some good songs sung about the birth of the Messiah. I ended last Sabbath with, O Come All Ye Faithful. Beautiful song. Nothing's wrong with the lyrics. Uh, there are many songs you can sing about the Messiah's birth that people sing about the Messiah's birth that are true, wonderful. Um, I like to see the nativity scenes in people's yards. Sometimes they'll have the wise men there that probably weren't there at the birth of the Messiah. They came a little bit later. So me and Tisha were driving home yesterday and we were talking about this nativity scene we saw and we said, let's sneak up there and move those wise men a little bit further off so it looks like they're coming from the east. <laughs> of course, we wouldn't mess with anybody's property like that, but we were just having a laugh about it. The nativity scene takes your mind to Luke chapter 2, to the birth in Bethlehem. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. On the other hand, though, this is the problem. On the other hand, you have all sorts of weird additions that people incorporate into the birth of Christ, like the tradition of Santa Claus, Santa Claus is probably a mixture of St. Nicholas, which was a Catholic saint, and there are some vestiges of the god Odin that probably got mixed in with Santa Claus. And it's weird because he knows when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've done bad or good. It's like he's all-knowing, he knows everything, he's going to get you in trouble if you've been bad and bless you if you've done good. And I don't like that. I'm thankful my dad and mom never taught me about Santa Claus. We did celebrate Christmas in a manner of speaking growing up, but they always told us the presents came from them and not Santa. <laughs> and when I got older, my dad said he didn't believe in lying to his children. Christmas trees, the Roman calendar, elves, stockings hung by the chimney with care. None of that has to do with the birth of the Messiah. 
And there's many other things that doesn't have to do with our Lord's birth. But instead, when you look at Christmas today, if you take away the, the birth of the Messiah and the song sung about His birth, if you take that away, what you have left that's celebrated today around the wintertime, it looks a lot, an awful lot like an ancient Roman pagan festival called Saturnalia. Saturnalia just so happened to be observed in the month of December. Some people who don't like you speaking of Saturnalia in the same sentence as Christmas say that Saturnalia wasn't observed on December 25th, and that's true, but that doesn't matter because Christmas is not a day. Christmas is a season. Everybody knows that. Once December hits, everybody's in the Christmas spirit, right? Maybe not the Holy Spirit, but the Christmas spirit. Christmas is a season of time, and Saturnalia took place in that season of time. And what takes place today looks a lot like the ancient Roman festival of Saturnalia when you read about it in uh, primary source history, authors that lived at that time. On top of that, Christmas was not instituted by people devoted to the law of Moses way back then. Remember how I said Hanukkah and Purim were instituted by people that were devoted to the law of Moses? Christmas wasn't. Christmas was instituted by Gentile Christians that had abandoned the law of Moses, said the feast days were done away with. We're going to keep this festival. It was a substitute for the commanded feast. Same thing with Easter. Substitute for Passover. So while there are some good aspects about Christmas, all the weird customs and this month that somebody devised in their own heart that's determined by the Roman calendar instead of Yahweh's calendar, they have replaced the commanded feast and it has overshadowed the good. I did talk about how I now believe, based on my studies, that the December 25th date was arrived at by some early Christians who attempted to calculate the birth of Christ based upon when they believed he was conceived in the womb of Mary. I used to believe that some early Christians borrowed that date from the birthday of other gods. I no longer believe that, and that's something I've changed my mind on. Um, I don't think that the early Christians that first presented the December 25th date in the 2nd and 3rd centuries were trying to choose a pagan date or adopt a pagan festival. I don't think that. I do think that eventually winter festivals from all over the world and all different cultures eventually started blending together and traditions have outlasted the reason for the tradition. A lot of times you'll find that that's the case. A tradition will go on and people that continue to do it won't even know why they're doing it anymore. A tradition outlasts the reason for the tradition. Regardless of all of this, and I went into detail in my last sermon on this, regardless of this, the calculation theory is conjecture. The truth is nobody knows when our Messiah was born. Could he have been born in December? It is possible. It is. Some people think it's not. I think it's possible. Was he born in December? I can't prove that. Neither can anybody else. It's what some early Christians calculated and believed, but that does not make it certain. It does not make it truth. I began this series by telling you that my wife first introduced me to what I believe now about Christmas by showing me Jeremiah 10 back before we were married. We were on the phone call one night. I think I was on a corded phone, maybe, or either a big cordless phone that was huge. <laughs> and she said that this verse existed in the Bible, and I told her she was crazy. There's no way that verse exists in the Bible. And then she said, open your Bible and... This is actually a picture of the Bible that I had back then that my parents gave me in 1995. 
old King James study Bible. It floored me then, and I will still tell you that it surprises people today when they first read it or hear about it. I know this because I've asked people to read this out of a Bible before, and when they're reading it, their eyes get a little bit bigger when they read because a lot of people don't know that that exists in Scripture. I opened up with it. Now, the common kickback that I get is that Jeremiah 10 is not talking about a Christmas tree, but it's talking about an idol. I've heard so many Christians over the last 20 years tell me that what takes place in Christian homes today or in general isn't the same thing as Jeremiah 10. Now, my first response, and I think this is the proper response that you should give, my first response is this. I agree that Jeremiah chapter 10 isn't specifically talking about a Christmas tree. Now, what we specifically call a Christmas tree today did not exist back at the time of Jeremiah. Let me give you an example. It's like a shotgun. You can't read a shotgun back into the biblical text. The Israelites didn't carry around rifles when they went to war and took up arms. When the scripture says they took up arms to go battle with Joshua the son of Nun, they didn't have rifles. They didn't have shotguns. They didn't even have muskets like in the Revolutionary War. What did they have? Daggers, swords, shields, weapons like that, spears. Guns had not been invented. So when someone tells you that the modern day Christmas tree did not exist back then, I think it's best to first just acknowledge that point. What that doesn't mean though, and this is where a lot of people, a lot of people think only to a certain point and they stop thinking. It doesn't mean that we cannot learn things about the practice of the Christmas tree today from principles that are found in the Bible. Brother Sandy and I were talking before service and Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 says when you build a house, a new house, make sure that you build a parapet around your roof. Nobody talks like that anymore. Anybody know what a parapet is? Some of the newer Bibles say a railing or a battlement. Now, all of our houses today, the roof looks like this and we don't spend any time on the roof, do we? Unless we're repairing a shingle or a piece of sheet metal. But where do we spend time sometimes? On high porches. And if you build a 10-foot-tall high porch on your house, you need a parapet or a railing around it. Why? Because you're going to entertain people. They're going to come over for food and drink. And while you're out there eating, you don't want a little one to fall off the side and die from a 10-foot fall. So you can learn about a high porch from Deuteronomy 22 and 8, even though Deuteronomy 22 and 8 isn't talking about a high porch but a roof. Because back then the Israelites had flat roofs, even in the first century. Uh, when Yeshua talked about the great tribulation, he said, anybody that's on his rooftop, don't go down to get anything out of your house. Just flee. Because there was a set of stairs, most of the time on a, on a Jewish home, there was a set of stairs on the side that went up to the roof where they would entertain people, families, as they would come over and, and die. Hopefully you get my point. The Bible doesn't tell us anything about heroin. That doesn't mean we can't learn not to do heroin from scriptures that are in the Bible anciently. You see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? So while Jeremiah 10 isn't specifically talking about a Christmas tree, I think we can learn principles from it and scripture in regards to what takes place. So let's not stop thinking. Let's continue to think because when we read Jeremiah chapter 10, it sounds an awful lot like what takes place in our modern day when it comes to the Christmas tree. It does. And that's why when people... The first time they read it, before they are infiltrated with anything in their mind, they think, hmm, that sounds like what we've done all our life. 
in December. Heathen people back then at the time of Jeremiah and before did not just have carved images for idols. Idols were not just carved images. Sometimes they were. But sometimes idols were just natural objects. One of these objects was trees. And specifically, trees that never lost their color. Evergreens. At the Roman Saturnalia, evergreens were brought around and into homes as a sign of fertility and life during the dead winter season when everything, most everything in nature died. For example, the early Christian Tertullian writes this, and this is on page 44 of the Anti-Nicene Church Fathers, volume 3. He says, quote, Why on the day of gladness do we, speaking of Christians, neither cover our doorpost with laurels, a laurel is an evergreen, nor intrude upon the day with lamps. It is a proper thing at the call of a public festivity to dress your house up like some new brothel. However, in the matter of this homage to a lesser majesty in reference to which we are accused of a lower sacrilege because we do not celebrate along with you the holidays of the Caesars in a manner forbidden alike by modesty, decency, and purity. End of quote. He wrote that around the year 200 A.D., and keep in mind, he wrote this before Christians celebrated any type of festival for the birth of Christ, much less anything like the modern day Christmas. Now, this does not mean that an evergreen tree is in and of itself heathen or pagan. I'm not telling you if you have a row of Leland cypresses as a fence line on your property that you've got to go cut them down. It's not what I'm saying. Uh, but people did sometimes worship trees. People sometimes worship the sun and the moon and the stars and the high hills and the mountains. If I go up to Stone Mountain and climb up the mountain and have a picnic at the top, it doesn't mean I'm worshiping the mountain, see? But sometimes people did worship them as deities. In times past, trees were sometimes part of pagan worship. This is why when the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, or before they entered the land of Canaan, they were commanded in Exodus 34:13. one of the things they were commanded is to go into the land and cut down their groves. Cut down their groves. John Gill, the old Baptist commentator from the 1700s, great, great commentator and scholar on the Bible, he says this on Exodus 34:13. Quote, cut down their groves, which were clusters of trees where they had their temples and their idols and did service to them, and where besides idolatry many impurities were committed. Such places were originally used by good men for devotion, being shady and solitary, but when abused to superstitious and idolatrous uses were forbidden. It is said the word for grove is general and includes every tree they serve or plant for an idol. End of quote. There are many places in Scripture where false worship is said to be done on every high hill and under every green tree. And I would encourage you to just look up the phrase green tree in the KJV. Look up that phrase and study those texts in your study time. So Jeremiah 10 verse 2 begins by Yahweh telling the house of Israel, Do not learn the ways of the heathen nations and be not dismayed at the signs of the heavens. And many people miss that part. Be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. The ERV reads here, 
Don't live like people from other nations. Don't be afraid of special signs in the sky. The other nations are afraid of what they see in the sky. But you must not be afraid of them. Why would somebody be dismayed or afraid by a sign in the heavens? Well, i tell you what fits perfectly here is the practice of many nations around the time of the winter solstice. The longest night of the year and the shortest day of the year, which so happens to be in the month of December, which was originally a Roman month. When they would bring in evergreens in different forms around and into homes as a sign of fertility and life during the longest nights of the year, which we're experiencing right now still. We do not see any examples of righteous Israelites doing this because the winter solstice to them was part of the calendar. Winter solstice is not pagan in and of itself. It's Yahweh created it. But pagans can use the winter solstice for their worship and service to other mighty ones. Righteous Israelites did not worship the sun in the sky. Some ancient peoples did worship the sun. Once again, not a carved image. They actually worshiped the S-U-N sun. This is why in Deuteronomy 4.19, Yahweh tells His people Israel, don't worship the sun, the moon, and the stars, the heavenly host. Why did He tell them that? Because some people did. Some people did as deities. We aren't to be like that. We're not to follow the heathen customs. We should not be afraid, as the text says, don't be afraid or dismayed at the signs in the heavens. We... Uh, we ate at a Chinese restaurant yesterday. I tell people December 25th is Chinese restaurant day because that's the day the Chinese restaurants open and all the others are closed. <laughs> so we ate there yesterday and our table was situated by a Christmas tree. It's right there beside a Christmas tree. My daughter-in-law, Angel, was taking a family picture. I said, make sure to get the tree in there. Just making a joke, you know. I'm not afraid of that tree. <laughs> I know that tree can't do anything to me. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm not afraid of that tree. But sometimes heathens would build up this fear of the heavenly lights and things that happen, especially when the days got short and the nights got long. And they wanted the days to get longer. Even in this time, I mean, we see a lot of, a lot of depression, a lot of downtroddenness around this time of the year, and part of it is because we have long nights and short days and not as much sunshine. Sunshine is good for our health. It gives us vitamin D, sometimes kinds that we can't get anywhere else but just by going out and enjoying the sunshine that Yahweh gave us. Well, we can't do that for as long in the wintertime. It's nothing to be scared of. It's nothing to be afraid of. Nor is the tree. Now, with this backdrop here, in Jeremiah 10, verse 2, verse 3 then speaks of one of the customs of the heathens. It begins by saying, they cut a tree out of the forest, and then it mentions the hands of the workmen with the axe. Now some people say, well, Brother Matthew, this is speaking of an artisan and a sculptor. And the axe, he's chiseling, and he's doing all this, and he's making this carved image. That's a possible reading. Some translations read like that, but other translations don't. Other translations just speak of a workman or a carpenter, as it could be translated, cutting down a tree with an axe. That verse can just as easily refer to a man using an axe to cut down a tree. It doesn't have to be talking about an artisan chiseling out a nose and eyes for an idol. It could go either way. 
verse 4 says that the heathens then decked the tree with silver and gold. And sometimes people will go down to verse 9 to mention the silver and the gold plates as though this has to be a carved idol. But a tree or an idol can be decked with silver and with gold. The point here is that it does not have to be a carved idol. It can just as easily be describing some type of ancient tree worship. I think one of the best points is in verse 4. The part where it says, They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. That's a direct quote from Jeremiah 10.4b, King James Version. That is something you would do to a tree. Why? Because it cannot stand up on its own after you cut it down. You would have to fasten it down with nail, nails and hammers so it didn't move. It's not the case with a carved idol image. A carved idol image was carved in such a way that it would stand up on its own. You wouldn't have to use a hammer and a nails to make it stand up on its own. I think that text fits better with a tree. Verse 5 says they are upright as the palm tree. But some Bibles say something like they are like scarecrows in a cucumber patch. And sometimes this is pointed out to say that this is proof of a carved idol. Because people say, Brother Matthew, this is likened to a scarecrow, an image. I don't think that's the author's point here. I don't think that's Yahweh's point. This is Yahweh speaking. The mentioning of scarecrows in some translations is due to the tree not being able to speak and having to be carried. The author is not saying that the tree looks like a scarecrow. The author is paralleling it with a scarecrow because it cannot speak or it cannot walk like a scarecrow in a cucumber patch. Hopefully you see that. In the end, while a modern day Christmas tree did not exist back at the time of Jeremiah... What people do at this time of the year comes way too close to a simple reading of Jeremiah 10, 1 through 5. I believe that the simple reading of Jeremiah 10, 1 through 5 is the correct reading. Before anybody tries to come to you and explain to you that it actually is not talking about this, I think the simple reading is the correct reading. And I believe that the Christmas tree is an offspring or the modern child of what was taking place back in Jeremiah chapter 10. Just like the battlement on a high porch is similar to the parapet on top of an old Israelite roof. They're not one and the same identical, but one comes from the other. Do you understand what I'm saying? Hmm. I realize people will tell you they don't worship their Christmas tree as an idol. I have so many people tell me that. They don't worship their Christmas tree as an idol. And you know what? I see their point. I see their point. Idol worship as it was done anciently isn't really much of a thing anymore. My point is that what people are doing today stems from what was going on back in Jeremiah chapter 10. And it comes way too close to fitting Jeremiah 10. And so my wife and I, we don't do that. And we've taught our children not to do that. We don't want to come close to breaking Yahweh's instructions. Years ago, Tisha and I and Alicia as well, we had some property up in Montana. And I remember driving up to the top. This property was like 7,000 feet elevation on top of a hill. We had, I think it was a total of 42 acres. And I remember it wasn't an easy drive to get up to the top. And there were parts on that driveway where Tisha would look down on the passenger side and there would be this cliff. And if I got too close to the cliff and we slipped and fell, it would be over with. And so she would say, you're getting too close, you're getting too close. 
Scoot over. You're getting too close. I think that we need to be like that when it comes to serving Yahweh. We don't need to try to get as close to the cliff as we can. We need to try to stay far away from the cliff. And if something looks like it's not right, don't participate in it. A good friend and brother of mine, Brother Randy Sewell, used to tell me when it came to the dietary laws, sometimes I would say, do we know if there's pork in that or not? And Randy would say, when in doubt, do without. And that stuck with me. If I don't know, just let it go. How serious are we in our service to the Creator? How much do we want to make sure He approves of us? Make sure He looks at us and says, that's my child, well done, Jeff, well done, Lisa. We should not try to get as close to the cliff as possible, but stay further away from it. I watched a movie one time called New in Town. Some of you may have seen the movie. It came out, I think, 2009-2010. Harry Connick Jr. was a one of the uh, actors in that movie. And there's this scene. I tried to pull it up, but I couldn't find it for free on YouTube. But there's this scene where everybody is holding this candle and they're going around doing some Christmas caroling and they're singing, Oh, come all ye faithful, which is a beautiful song. It's a beautiful song. But they're singing that song. But as they walk and sing, they end up around this big lit up Christmas tree in this field. And they all stand around, around it in a circle and they're singing that song about the Messiah and they're looking at that tree while they sing. And I realize somebody's going to say they were not worshiping the tree and I can agree with that to some degree. But at the same time, why? Why are you doing that? Ask yourself, why do I do the things that I do? It's not good enough to say mom and daddy did it or grandmom and granddaddy did it. That's not good enough. We've got to see what the Almighty says. God Almighty, what does He say about it? Even though people may not be worshiping the tree like an idol of old, where did they get what they're doing? Where is what they're doing? Where did it come from? Why are they singing a song about Christ and looking up to an evergreen tree while singing? You know, people today actually do sing a song to, a, to the Christmas tree, and you've probably heard it. Old Christmas tree, old Christmas tree, thy leaves are so unchanging. And talks about how that it blossoms, flourishes in the summer, but it keeps flourishing in the winter. And they say, old Christmas tree, old Christmas tree, such pleasure do you bring me. Some people might be okay with that. Now, Brother Matthew, <laughs> you're not going to hear me singing old Christmas tree. <laughs> One time, my daughter Rosalind was in a, a a choir, and she was asking me about some of the songs they were singing because some of them were what we would call nativity songs about the birth of the Messiah. And I said, I don't have a problem with that. And she said, Well, Dad, there's one I have a problem with, and it's singing to the Christmas tree. I said, Well, me, me and you both have a problem with that. I said, well, What are you going to do? She said, Well, I just won't sing. And so we went to the choir that night and we watched them sing and she was singing. She loves to sing. Y'all know Rose, she loves to sing. And they got to that song and she goes, everybody else is singing and she's just standing there with a smile. <laughs> Finished the song and then she jumped back in. Nobody ever said anything. So, But she wasn't comfortable singing that. And you know what? I was thankful that my daughter wasn't comfortable singing that. That made me, that made me think well of my daughter. I was well pleased in that. You know, I didn't even like singing to the old rugged cross when I grew up in church. Anybody ever sing that song? 
I will cherish the old rugged cross. I remember when I was a kid, I used to think, why are we singing to the cross? <laughs> then I got grew up and I said, I'm not going to sing to the cross anymore. I will cherish the old rugged cross. I didn't like that. Why would we sing to an object instead of singing to the, the one who, who, who hung on that cross? So I'm not going to sing old rugged cross and I'm not going to sing old Christmas tree. As I end today, ultimately what you have to do, brothers and sisters, and all those that are here, what you have to do is you have to make a decision as to why you are or are not going to do things in your worship and service to the Creator. You've got to make that decision. You need to get your flesh out of the way and, and ask, say, Yahweh, I only want the truth. I only want to do what's pleasing to you. Be as honest as you can with the level of understanding you have at the present time. Yahweh's not expecting you to know everything, but He don't want you to be lazy either. There's a difference between somebody not knowing something genuinely because they're not at that level yet and somebody that should be at that level, but they're lazy and they haven't done any study. And they're at the same place now that they were ten years ago. That ought not be. My brothers and sisters that I love, that ought not be. Ask yourself why you do the things you do or forbid the things you forbid. And talk to older saints, older people in the faith that have lived this and have been serving Yahweh longer than you. Gain wisdom from them. Do the best research you can. Listen to studies on both sides, on all sides. And in the end, you make the decision that you genuinely believe best pleases Yahweh. You don't have to believe everything Brother Matthew believes. That's not why I'm up here. I'm not up here to get you to believe what I believe. I'm up here to stir up your mind to study and to serve the Creator with a personal relationship between you and Him. As for me and my house, we don't do Christmas. We love the Messiah. We love His birth. I love reading Luke 2. I read it last week and I could hardly get through the reading of Luke 2, 1 through 20 without a tear coming to my eye because I can think about what it would have been like for Joseph and Mary and the shepherds on the night that that king of Israel was born a lowly birth. It's just beautiful. I get cold chills just thinking about it right now. It's wonderful to me. You might come by the house next year during grass cutting season and hear me singing, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. <laughs> because I love to sing songs about his birth. I do a lot of singing when I cut grass because I, it passes the time. But as far as this particular festival that takes place in the winter that claims to be in honor of the Messiah, as for me and my house, we pass. I believe there are far too many questionable customs and way too much commercialism and worldliness involved. And I would rather, catch this, if you don't catch anything else, I would rather put all of my effort into Yahweh's command in feast days. All of my effort. I think it was Brother Sandy I was telling, you know, my children, we're blessed that we never grew up celebrating these worldly holidays. And so when Tabernacles comes around for my children, it's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> and they love to decorate and to build and to put up the campers and the tents and the lights and sing around the campfire and talk around the campfire and Go to Bible study and study the Torah. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And praise Yahweh for all these little, little bitty children in the congregation that are growing up in the same way. I would rather put all my effort into observing Yahweh's commanded feasts the best that I can. 
I will be thankful for the birth of the Messiah. I just don't believe that Yahweh is pleased with everything that's happening today during this modern holiday. So that's my last sermon. I probably won't teach on this for years and years after this. I'll move on to more things. This is really elementary to me. I'm going to move on to, to, to deeper things, and I haven't spoke on this in a long time, but this will be the last time I talk about this probably for the next 10 years.